Well, thank you, Joe, for leading us in worship so well. Let me add my welcome to that of Grace earlier. Whether you're part of our foundation community or you've just chosen to watch this service today, whether you're from Wokingham or from further afield, you're most welcome. We're gr it's great to have you with us. Over the last few weeks, we've been working our way through the Old Testament book of Ecclesiastes, written by King Solomon. And our series is entitled, The, Me the Search for Meaning. The Old Testament contains a number of different types of writings. Books that contain the law, or God's instructions to his people Israel. Books containing the history of God's dealings with his people books that contain the message of God delivered to his people through the prophets, a whole series of prophets. And then poetic and wisdom books, including Ecclesiastes. We probably best know Solomon for that quality of wisdom. It was a gift from God. You may recall that early in his reign, God appeared to Solomon in a dream and invited him to ask for whatever he wanted God to give him. And Solomon, young and rather daunted at the task of leading the people, replied, Give your servant a discerning heart to govern your people and to distinguish between right and wrong. Wow, what a great start! Such brilliant intent! Here we see Solomon recognizing his total dependence on God the God who had treated his father David with such great kindness and then extended this to Solomon himself. Solomon did many great things during his reign and he amassed great wealth, possessions and power. But sadly, he went off the rails. He lusted after and married many foreign women going against what God had instructed the Israelites. These foreign wives turned Solomon's heart to other gods. In 1 Kings 11, we read, So Solomon did evil in the eyes of the Lord. He did not follow the Lord completely, as David his father had done. We've seen in the early chapters, chapters of Ecclesiastes how Solomon had looked to other things for satisfaction, and meaning in life. He concluded that everything under the sun, everything in this life, was meaningless. This included toil and wisdom, knowledge, pleasures, and possessions. He'd experienced it all. And because of his wealth, power, and position, he was able to indulge himself more than anyone else. Yet nothing nothing that he saw or experienced and that he pursued for his own pleasure provided him with satisfaction. They were all in vain. Now this week, we come to a short section that is at the very heart of the book where Solomon reflects on who God is and how he and we should approach him. In short, he writes about worship. You'll find our passage in Ecclesiastes chapter 5, and we're going to work through the first seven verses from which I want to pick out 
a few aspects of worship and how they apply to us today. If you have a Bible to hand, please follow along as I read. If you don't, the words will appear on your screen. I want to start with just his opening instruction. So in chapter 5 and verse 1, the beginning of that verse says, Guard your steps when you go to the house of God. So firstly, I want to look at where we worship. In verse 1, the teacher references a physical place when he writes, when you go to the house of the Lord. In Old Testament times, worship was predominantly in a gathering of people, a congregation, and God's presence was associated with a specific place. For years, the meeting place between God and his people, the Israelites, had been a temporary structure, the tabernacle or tent of meeting. We see this referred to in Exodus 33, where, where Moses uh, pitched a tent outside the camp to which the people would go if they needed to hear from God. From verse 9 of that chapter we read, As Moses went into the tent, the pillar of cloud would come down and stay at the entrance while the Lord spoke with Moses. Whenever the people saw the pillar of cloud standing at the entrance to the tent, they all stood and worshipped, each at the entrance to their tent. The Lord would speak to Moses face to face as one speaks to a friend. After King David had built his palace in Jerusalem, he dropped plans for a permanent dwelling place for the Ark of God, and he contributed to the cost from his personal wealth. However, it was in Solomon's reign that the seven-year building project took place on Mount Moriah. The temple represented the presence of God and served as a reminder of God's holiness. So it was only accessible to the priests and Levites. The people couldn't go directly to God. The relationship that God intended to have with his creation was spoiled when Adam and Eve went against God's instructions in the Garden of Eden. So now only the priests had the right to talk and pray directly to God and to offer sacrifices to him on behalf of the people. They were responsible for representing God to the people and the people to God. Once a year, the high priest would go through a curtain into a separate area called the Holy of Holies, where he would atone for the sins of the Israelites, their failure to keep God's laws. But even as the temple was completed, in his prayer of dedication, Solomon questions, but can God really dwell on earth with humans? The heavens, even the highest heavens, cannot contain you, how much less this temple I have built. Just under a thousand years later, that question was answered when Jesus, the Son of God, was born into an earthly family. He was fully God, but became fully man and lived among humans, experiencing the full range of emotions, trials, and temptations that we face. And yet 
yet without sin. He went through excruciating suffering in the lead up to and on the cross to pay the penalty for our failure, your failure and my failure to live up to God's standards and to make it possible for us to be right with God. As Jesus died, the curtain in the temple was torn into from top to bottom, indicating that there's no longer a barrier to us having direct access to God. Hebrews 4 describes Jesus as a great high priest who has ascended into heaven, through whose work we can now approach God's throne of grace with confidence. In 1 Corinthians, Paul says, Our bodies, our bodies are temples of the Holy Spirit who is in you. So if you're a believer, you have God present in you. I've known some great times, as you probably have, when I've been on my own reading my Bible and praying and singing songs of worship and praise to God. But just because we can worship on our own, it doesn't mean we shouldn't gather together. Quite the contrary, in fact. Scripture teaches us that we're intended to be part of a community, that church functions as people come together, each bringing their contributions and gifting. These recent months have been a real frustration for us as a church. We're so grateful for the technology and for those with great technical skills that allow us to uh, meet together, to broadcast our services, and to keep in touch with one another. But it's a long, long way short of what we'd like to be doing and what we believe we should be doing. It's not that we can't join in at home, but let's be honest, there are a whole load more distractions than when we're gathered together here in the octagon. Let me ask you, when the worship songs were on your screen earlier, were you fully engaged? Did you join in? Was your attitude one of, Lord, speak to me through the words that we're singing? Last Sunday, Grace referred to last Sunday earlier on in her introduction. Last Sunday, the picnic service was great, wasn't it? Absolutely fabulous to be able to see one another and because we were outside, to be able to worship God together and sing songs of praise and worship. I'm so thankful that the time is fast approaching when we will be gathering again in person on Sundays, taking all the necessary precautions, social distancing, face masks, hand sanitization, etc. Regrettably, initially at least, as we're meeting indoors, we won't be able to have sung worship. But we will be able to worship God together in other forms. COVID has presented us with difficulties. But there may be other times when we've withdrawn from gathering together to worship God, and even doing so as individuals. Some years ago, after months of being out of work and feeling the need to provide for my family, I took a job so far away from here that it would have entailed a house move. We explored such a move, looking at schools and churches, 
but in the end decided it would be too disruptive for the family and for their education. So I bought a small house uh, near to my new job, and I did a weekly commute. But having no family and no community other than work, I found myself working increasingly long hours in the office, eventually returning home to do decorating. Weekends seemed so short, with two gardens to maintain, and family time was precious, so we drifted from church, attending only very infrequently, until my job relocated back to this area. Looking back on it, I'm appalled at how my priorities were so wrong. And I'm so grateful to those who came alongside us to encourage us back. In Hebrews 10 and verses 24 and 25, we read, And let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together, as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another, and all the more as you see the day drawing near. Let me encourage you. Take every opportunity to gather in community with other Christians to worship our God. As we recommence in-person gatherings here at Oakwood, if you're not required to self-isolate, do please join with us to bless others, to be blessed yourself, but most of all, to bless God. In Psalm 149, the psalmist encourages us to praise the Lord, to sing to the Lord a new song, his praise in the assembly of his faithful people. And then in verse 4 of that same psalm, for the Lord takes delight in his people. He crowns the humble with victory. Secondly, let's look at how we worship. Let me ask you, what's it like for you before we meet together? It's a little different now as you're watching from home, although the question is still pertinent. I can remember back to when our children were young. There often seemed to be hassle in getting ready to go to church. One of them couldn't find their shoes or had messed up their clothes or simply just wasn't ready. There could be raised voices, impatience, irritability. All in all, it could be pretty fraught. However, let's not blame it on the kids. We know even as adults, things can go wrong and tensions arise even as we're preparing to go to a church service or to a prayer meeting. And then we go into the meeting, smiling to greet others as we take our seats before being encouraged to worship God together. Now, of course, these experiences could be unique to our household, but somehow I suspect not. Solomon gives us some instruction as to how we should behave as we come together before God to worship. Firstly, we read, uh, we read earlier, guard your steps, or make sure you know what you're doing. In other words, this isn't something to be taken lightly. You've heard the expression, familiarity breeds contempt. When we feel we know someone really well, we can easily become bored 
or stop treating them with respect. However, with God, it may not be that we know him that well, but that we treat lightly the free access we have to him, even though it was bought for us by Jesus at huge cost through his death on the cross. In his letter to the Ephesians, chapter 3, Paul writes, In him and through faith in him, we may approach God with freedom and confidence. But just because we have that freedom, it doesn't mean that we should be casual about coming before God. Just take a moment to think about it. God, the almighty God, the holy God, the all-powerful one, the creator of the universe, the one who created you and me and knows everything about us, the King of kings and Lord of lords invites us, you and me, into his very presence. It's an awesome privilege that we have, and we shouldn't abuse it. It's hard to come up with an illustration that comes anywhere close to capturing the reality of this. Everything falls such a long way short. But imagine you had the keys to all the royal palaces, you could just drop in whenever you wanted to see the Queen. That would be pretty amazing. But as I said, it comes nowhere close to the privilege that we have. Stay with the illustration for a while, though. If you are going to meet the Queen, there are protocols to be learned and observed. There's preparation to be done. The Lord Lieutenant or one of his team will instruct you on the do's and the don'ts that help demonstrate the respect that you have for the monarch. Things like only speaking when you're spoken to, the correct posture, you know, how to bow, how to curtsy, how to address the queen, and so on. Most adhere to these protocols, although there are the occasional exceptions. When Solomon tells us to guard our steps, He's encouraging us to prepare before we come before God, not to treat doing so casually. We need to be right with God and right with one another. Jesus also taught on this theme. In Matthew 5:23, part of the Sermon on the Mount, we read, Therefore, if you are offering your gift at the altar, and there, remember that your brother or sister has something against you. Leave your gift there in front of the altar. First go and be reconciled to them. Then come and offer your gift. And again in Mark 11 and verse 25. And when you stand praying, if you hold anything against anyone, forgive them so that your Father in heaven may forgive you your sins. So we need to prepare. But as we read on, Solomon gives us further guidance on how we should come to worship. Reading on in chapter 5, Go near to listen rather than to offer the sacrifice of fools who do not know that they do wrong. Do not be quick with your mouth. Do not be hasty in your heart to utter anything before God. God is in heaven and you are on earth, so let your words be few. A dream comes when there are many cares. 
and many words mark the speech of a fool. In recent years, we've become all too familiar with the term fake news. News stories that, it's claimed, portray a different version of events, or ones that are completely fictional or without factual basis. Well, what Solomon is describing here in these verses is what we might term fake worship. It's worship that isn't genuine or real, that doesn't come from a pure heart or good motives. All in all, it's a sham. The sacrifice of fools comes from those who haven't truly repented, whose hearts aren't cleansed. They bring their worship as a matter of show and make a big thing of the external appearance rather than as a true act of devotion. He tells us to go near to listen. Commentators tell us that hearing often carries with it the sense of obeying. Listen and obey is better than sacrifice. That ties in very much with what we learned in the letter of James when he exhorts us to be doers of the word and not hearers only. Solomon also denounces those who make rash promises to God and then fail to deliver on them, saying it would be better if they didn't make those vows in the first place. If you want an example of this, you can read Judges chapter 11, where Jephthah made a deal with God to sacrifice the first thing that emerged from his house if God gave him victory in battle. On his return home, instead of an animal appearing as he had expected, it was his daughter who emerged to greet him. Imagine how devastating that was for Jephthah. Solomon's father, King David, recognized the type of sacrifice that pleased God. After he'd been confronted by the prophet Nathan over committing adultery with Bathsheba and the other sins that flowed from that, he wrote in Psalm 51, You do not delight in sacrifice, or I would bring it. You do not take pleasure in burnt offerings. My sacrifice, O God, is a broken spirit, a broken and a contrite heart you, God, will not despise. In his ministry, Jesus also denounced those engaged in fake worship. He described as hypocrites those who love to pray standing up in the street corners just so they are seen by others. But he also taught on the kind of worship which is acceptable when he told the Samaritan woman at the well that true worshippers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth, for they are the kind of worshippers the Father seeks. The Apostle Paul, in writing to the Christians in Rome, made it clear that worship involved offering our whole selves to God. He urged them, in view of God's mercy, to offer your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. He told them that this was true and proper worship. True worship requires that we bring all that we are and all that we have into submission to God. That includes all the aspects of life that Solomon has talked about in the earlier chapters. The work that we do, our money and our possessions, 
our time and how we use it, our knowledge and wisdom, our attitudes towards others, our thought lives and our actions. Only as we submit all to God will we be true worshippers. Finally, I want us to look at who we worship. Now, you may think that's pretty obvious. However, it's important that we consider it because throughout the first four chapters that we've covered in the previous sessions, the focus has been on the teacher or the preacher, Solomon himself. It's all about him and him placing his trust in material things. Time after time we read, I said to myself, I applied my mind, I turned my thoughts to consider, I came to realize, I saw that. Where's God in all of this? We've gone from the Solomon who at the outset recognized his total dependence on God to the Solomon who is living his life in total self-reliance. His life seemed meaningless because God was missing. He'd chosen to rely on himself rather than trust in God. Worship of God and recognition of his lordship is the answer to all of the vanities or the meaninglessness of life that he's spoken of thus far. Wisdom, learning, pleasure, honour, power and business. The Westminster Catechism, written in the 1600s, provides a succinct answer to our search for the meaning in life. Man's chief and highest end is to glorify God and to fully enjoy him forever. In verse 2 of our passage, Solomon acknowledges the gulf there is between God and man. God is in heaven and you are on earth. Now on the surface, that's just a statement of fact, but it recognizes our position relative to God. He's the creator, our creator. We are earthly beings created by him unworthy of any form of communication with him, unworthy to be in his very presence. This should determine how we come before him. We should come humbly. We should be reverent in his presence. We should stand in awe of him. This theme continues in the last three words of this passage. Therefore, fear God. Therefore, because of all that's been said before about God's position relative to us, about true worship as opposed to fake or vain worship, about making vows to God in the heat of the moment that we then fail to keep, in view of all this, fear God. I wonder what thoughts go through your mind when you hear those words, fear God. Perhaps you want to resist and argue that that's old school. Wasn't the fear of God an Old Testament thing? But then Jesus came. Maybe you think there was far too much talk in the past about fearing God and the wrath of God, but now we're into grace. 
or perhaps you struggle to understand why we should fear God if he's a God of love. It's so important that we have a right understanding of what it means to fear God. It's not helpful if you have in mind an evil oppressor or an unjust ruler or dictator. We fear God not because he's unjust or unfair. Quite the opposite. We only need to fear his anger if we fail to respond to his word. Paul, in writing to the Romans, says, But because of your stubbornness and your unrepentant heart, you're storing up wrath against yourself for the day of God's wrath, when his righteous judgment will be revealed. God will repay each person according to what they've done. To those who by persistence in doing good seek glory, honor, and immortality, he will give eternal life. But for those who are self-seeking and who reject the truth and follow evil, there will be wrath and anger. You know, pride leads us to a failure to repent and indicates that we don't take seriously our sin and the consequences of it. If, as you listen to this today, you've not acknowledged your failure to live up to God's standards and you've not repented and turned again and asked for forgiveness, then the warning of Paul in these verses is something I'd ask you to consider very seriously. You're storing up wrath for yourself on the day of God's righteous judgment. And that day will surely come. However, if you're a Christian today, you don't need to fear God's wrath. In his letter to the Ephesians, Paul wrote, As for you, you were dead in your transgressions and sins in which you used to live when you followed the ways of this world and of the ruler of the kingdom of the air, the spirit who is now at work in those who are disobedient. All of us also lived among them at one time, gratifying the cravings of our flesh and following its evil desires and thoughts. Like the rest, we were, by nature, deserving of wrath. And then one of the great buts in the Bible. But because of his great love for us, God, who is rich in mercy, made us alive with Christ, even when we were dead in our transgressions. It is by grace you have been saved. While we've been saved by grace, that doesn't give us the right to treat God casually or become over-familiar with him. For us to fear God is to understand our position relative to him and to be humble before him, to come before a God who created us and knows everything about us that there is to know. What we've said and what we've done, what we've watched and every thought we have. From him, nothing is hidden. We might be very good at putting on a show for other people but we can't fool God. He knows what our attitude is when we come before him. He doesn't have to take our word for it. He doesn't have to listen to the words that we utter. He knows our hearts. He knows whether we are truly repentant for the wrongs we've done 
and whether we come before him in humility and with a sense of awe and reverence. So as I conclude, I want to ask you to reflect on your approach to worship and to ask yourself a few questions. Is meeting together as a church high on your priority list? Or does it get crowded out by all manner of other things, the busyness of life? How do you prepare when you come to worship? Do you come having lived your life your way and on your terms during the week, just for a spiritual top-up? Or do you come having walked with God throughout the week, listening to his voice, reading his word, and seeking to live it out in your life? Have you come into a relationship with God through saying sorry for your failings and accepting the forgiveness that's available to you through the sacrifice of Jesus? If not, and if you'd like to talk and pray with someone, then please message us at hello at foundationchurch.org.uk. We'd love to come alongside you and talk and pray with you. And if you've taken that step of trusting Jesus and you know God as Father and as a God of love, do you have that right balance alongside the need for awe and reverence for him? I'm going to pray and then we're going to sing one final song. Let's pray together. God in heaven, we recognize our unworthiness to come into your very presence in our own right, but we come before you today so thankful for the sacrifice of the Lord Jesus that makes it possible for us to come into your very presence and to be found acceptable in your presence. And as we come today, we come to worship you. We come to lift high your name. We come in awe and reverence of who you are, your holiness, your majesty, your power, your awesome authority. We come in awe and reverence of all of that. And we bow the knee and we say, Lord God, we thank you for the access, the free access we have to you. And we pray that we will never take it lightly. We pray that we will always take seriously the relationship that we have with you. I pray that as we live out our lives this week, we will live out our lives in worship of you, that our lives will display the relationship that we have with you and your glory and your majesty, and that our lives will be a testimony to who you are and what you've done in our lives. In Jesus' name. Amen.